Support for the sponsor pod and the following message come from Sponsor CX. If you're looking for an innovative, intuitive, and simple way to manage your sponsorships, look no further than this sponsorship management software. Sign up for a demo today and find out how easy it is to manage your sponsors. Learn more at www.sponsorcx.com. Hey guys, it's Jason. Welcome to episode number seven of the Sponsor Pod featuring Avish Sood, brand manager with the Clorox Company and founder of the sponsorship space. Avish is a young, talented, and up-and-coming sponsorship professional who's created a social platform for the sponsorship industry while working for one of the biggest brands in the world. He's still super young in his career, but has accomplished a ton. So for those listening who are aspiring sports marketers, this is a must-listen. He's been recognized by Marketing Magazine and Sports Launch Magazine's 30 Under 30 list, and it was a pleasure to have him on the podcast. Enjoy the show, and thanks for listening. I called emailed the CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays when I was setting up the conference and uh, he responded and was like, oh yeah, sure, I'd love to get a coffee. Um, And I had actually came to the Rogers Centre at the time and met with him. So did he he come speak at this conference? Is that why you were reaching out to him? Yeah, so I was reaching out to to get him to speak, um, but he was just like, sure, like, why don't we just do a coffee and I'll understand, like, I want to know more about the event. And so I... uh, I reached out to him, went there, and then he was super humble, took off my jacket, and uh, was like, hey, uh, you know, do you want to meet Jose Batista, who's the outfielder at the time? Um, and I, I was like, oh, yeah, damn right I do. This is the Sponsor Pod, a show about sponsorship leaders and their experiences, stories, and how they see the ever-changing world of sponsorships. I'm Jason Smith, and on the show today, we're going to hear from Avish Sood, brand manager with the Clorox Company and founder of the sponsorship space. I connected with Avish to hear about his sponsorship journey. I had grown up in Markham, Ontario. Um, for most people who wouldn't know where that is, that's about half an hour um, outside of the city of Toronto, Canada. And uh, so I've grown up here all my life. Um, I went to a local university, uh, the University of Toronto, very big school. Um, you know, when you kind of get to a school like that, you're, you feel like a small fish in a, in a very big ocean. Um, but it was also my local neighborhood school. So I was happy to stay home while I, while I commuted to school. And uh, in terms of my, my upbringing, my my sisters, uh, I have two sisters that are older than me. One's 10 years older, one's six years older. Um, a lot of my musical taste would have came from them. Um, at least the beginning stages of my, my youth, you know, I, I had my first album was Britney Spears first <laughs> album, which is, uh, which is weird, but it's because I grew up with two sisters. Yeah. Um, and then my parents, uh, they have really interesting stories. So they moved 
they had an arranged marriage. They moved from England um, over to Canada. My dad was actually a designer and uh, he had a struggle to find jobs. So he actually, uh, they both moved here to Canada to start a new life. And, um, you know, when they couldn't find a job for him, he actually took my grandfather's advice and started his own business, actually named it after my mom. So my mom's name is Alka Sud and uh, the company's name is Alcaso. And so, um, you know, for 40 years, they've been running their company. So that's where I, I get a lot of inspiration for, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit that I have. Thanks to my parents. Um, they used to do trade shows every year, maybe three, four times a year. Sometimes um, they'd go to different cities and try to sell their products um, to large retailers, to small mom and pop stores. And so just some background on them. They actually um, sell kitchen linens and uh, a lot of things that they imported from India um, as part of their company. So they actually got some great, great, um, you know, distribution deals with Walmart at the time and home, home hardware in Canada and uh, Rona and a few other places. So they always hustled. Um, you know, I take a lot of inspiration when I watch them at trade shows and actually had to help them, um, you know, pack things and start things and then eventually start selling, you know, in one of my first jobs. Um, I got a lot of inspiration from them to say, you know what, you might not always be given opportunity, but uh, you can sure as hell make it. Um, yeah. So for, for me, it's always looking back to uh, how my parents approach life. And, and I think the entrepreneurial mindset comes from them. Well, you mentioned you went to, to the University of Toronto, um, the, the Rotman School of Management there. And what made you choose that? I mean, obviously you were living in Toronto at the mm -hmm. time, but what was there was there a draw there for you specifically yeah, it's, it's, with the with the program? I mean, it's pretty straightforward. Like uh, you know, when you're coming out of high school, you look at the options that you have and you kind of figure out, you know, what it is you want to do growing up. And uh, for me, I looked at, you know, the number of schools that I had gotten into and, and U of T was very well respected, um, very close to home. So I, you know, I was fortunate to, to not have to spend too much money on my tuition and, um, and, and my living expenses. But in general, like I just kind of picked the, the school that was most well respected. And, and, you know, if I ever wanted international ability to move outside of Canada, uh, the University of Toronto is very well known. So um, yeah, it was a great, great business program. Very, very challenging. But, uh, you know, when you're, when you're going through hard schools and, and going through, uh, tough challenges, you, you learn a lot about yourself. Was there a specific focus you had at the, in the business school there? Marketing? <laughs> You'd think so, eh? Um, yeah. oh, uh, accounting. Oh, um, accounting. Great. So, so funny thing about U of T is that they, they put you into one of three streams and, uh, at the time, they didn't really have a marketing option. They had something they called management, which I didn't really understand. So um, a lot of my friends were doing accounting. So I said, I'll just join you guys. Um, so I went yeah. into accounting. Oh, that's great. Well, it's, I'm sure that's helped you in negotiations and budgeting and, and all of that that comes with your current, your current role, I would imagine. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's always things um, that are going to be relevant from your university days. So I know a lot of people that have studied things like biology or psychology. Um, and, and, you know, for me, like accounting is something that I always lean on as a, a skill set and, uh, you know, just a understanding of numbers, especially when you're doing a lot of budget management in uh, the world of brand marketing, you're 
your your job is to make sure you're not going and overspending or underspending, um, and to make sure the PNL is in a very strong position. So, yeah, I I definitely do take a lot of uh, things away, but it's it's really my love for marketing and and the psychology behind, you know, why consumers buy products is is why I got into the marketing world after university. You know, it's interesting. That really doesn't matter too much. What you go into, it's what you get out of the experience at school, right? You know, mm-hmm. we've had. Tom Wills with Bonham Wills and Associates on this podcast. And he, he, uh, he went to school for neuroscience, right. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and all of a sudden here he is in sponsorships, but it was the, the, uh, some of the, the skills that he learned of, of how to analyze, um, and, and, uh, some of the, 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 the techniques that he used, you know, in that program that he uses today, you know, in analyzing sponsorships and, and things like that. I just find it really interesting that, uh, you know, for those going to school, you know, really get into something that interests you, right? But it could totally change. You can pivot to something different and whatever you learn from school, you're going to take with you, right? Totally. Totally. Well said. Yeah. Um, yeah. And wh- while at school, uh, well, f- first of all, you, um, I kind of want to know when you first decided sports marketing and sponsorships was what you wanted to go from a career path standpoint. It was, were you at, at uh, University of Toronto? at that point when you yeah, that's, decided that's, that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, it's, it's a, it's an interesting story. So I actually, um, I co-founded something called the university of Toronto sports industry conference. And, uh, so we, alongside a few, a few of my buddies, um, we had created a conference and, and this was back in 2011, um, where we had decided that, you know, there was a lot of opportunity in the world of sports marketing, but we never got exposure to it. Um, because UFT kind of funnels you into a few different business streams that, um, you know, are more generic, but sometimes they're higher paying um, at the, at the, at the beginning stages of your career. So you think about accounting jobs, you think about finance jobs, analyst jobs. Um, there's a, there's a safety blanket there, right? If you start off in marketing, especially in sports marketing, um, there's a very low pay at the beginning part of your career. So they didn't really promote that too much. Um, but what we had decided to do was to create our own conference at U of T and encourage students to attend so that we could um, find a way to network with sports professionals and, and actually just build something concrete to give us a little bit more of a tangible skill set outside of u- university classrooms. Um, so between myself, another guy named Natan, um, and Adrian Kenya, um, we, we created this organization and we, we kind of drew up on a napkin um, you know, what we thought the posters would look like and all of this stuff. And uh, we were in the cafeteria and we were just like, let's just do this. Let's, let's figure out a way to make this happen. Was this a club or just an, a, an official conference that you just decided to start? So, yeah, we had to create a club um, in order to get recognition from the Uf- university. Um, and then the club hosted the conference. So it's kind of hand in hand. Um, and, and basically the group uh, was to just bring together like-minded people that are interested in sports marketing as students. Um, and I'd say that the conference ended up being really successful because, you know, we kind of had nothing to lose. Um, we, we went in with the mindset that, uh, you know, we wanted to get into the world of sports marketing, but we didn't know how. And for me, um, it actually uh, led to a few different opportunities. So the most interesting one is I cold emailed the CEO of the Toronto Blue Jays when I was setting up the conference and uh, he responded and was like, oh yeah, sure, I'd love to get a coffee. Um, 
and I had actually came to the Rogers Center at the time and met with him. And so did he, he come speak at this conference? Is that why you were reaching out to him? Yeah, so I was reaching out to, to get him to speak. Um, but he was just like, sure, like, I'll, why don't we just do a coffee and I'll understand, like, okay. I want to know more about the event. And so I, uh, I reached out to him, went there, and then he was super humble, took off my jacket and uh, was like, hey, uh, you know, do you want to meet Jose Batista, who's the outfielder at the time? Um, and I, I was like, oh, yeah, damn right I do. <laughs> um, yeah, so yeah. he brought me in the hallway and then he actually went to a few of the executives and he was like, um, guys, like they, we're actually going to get a V-share to replace Jose Batista. Like, and then he just kind of made a joke about how I, I looked a lot like him because I had I hadn't shaved for a little while. Um, so I, I did. It, it went, did you, you have know, a big old bushy beard? I, I did. I totally did. <laughs> at the time. Yeah. Um, so like, yeah, he was just like, yeah, if you can save me some money in outfield, then uh, we'll we'll figure out a way. There um, you go. <laughs> there. <laughs> there. But yeah, go. so he. He, he just straight up asked me, he's like, so what are you looking for? And I was like, well, I'd love for you to speak at the event. And he's like, well, I, you know, my schedule doesn't really allow for it, but is there anything else I can help you with? Um, and I told him about, you know, the, being the first sponsor of the event so we can get it off the ground. And so he ended up giving us a, a small sum of money. Um, Did you think of that sponsor. like on the, on the fly? Like when he started saying, hey, I can't speak, but how else can I help or did, or did you kind of have that plan of like, Hey, maybe you can speak and sponsor or did you? Yeah. So, um, I, I, I came in with a, a proposal in my hand, like in a little thing that I made on, um, Microsoft word probably at the time. And, uh, I, I kept it with me. I didn't really uh, put it there as like the forefront of the conversation. Um, but when he had asked, I, I kind of gave it to him at the end and he was like, yeah, um, we'll, we'll be the first sponsor for sure. How much was that, if you don't mind me asking? I think it was uh, $2,000. That's awesome. There you go. Your That's first deal. That was my first. And, and the funny thing about that is that actually um, later that year when I did finish up the conference, I ended up interning with the Toronto Blue Jays after working um, you know, with a number of their staff members to execute on that sponsorship. Right. So I had to be exposed to the VP of marketing to get the assets that we needed. And I started to build a little bit of a network internally. And so when an internship popped up, you know, that sponsorship deal for $2,000 ended up getting me a sponsorship internship for the Toronto Blue Jays, which is where I started my sports marketing part of my career. How many sponsors did you end up having for that, for that conference, for that, your club? Yeah. Um, a lot of VIK deals, man. Um, we, <laughs> we, a lot of Contra, we, we kind of just said, you know, we'll, we'll take a, a Jersey here and there. Um, and we'll use it as auction to, sure. to raise some money. But, uh, yeah, I think, there was probably three uh, paying sponsors and then the rest were um, VIK. Well, it helps when you get like a big name, like the Toronto Blue Jays to be your first sponsor. You can kind of use that to go out and get more, more on yeah. board. Hey, the, the Blue Jays are involved, right? And, and, and um, that's like one of the, the early lessons for me at, at that point was just like, you know, there's oftentimes a snowball effect and yep. you can um, build off the momentum that you have based off who has committed to the project. All you need sometimes is one person to say, yeah, I'm in. And uh, you really need to run with that person to, to bring on others. Do you feel like that's, you've used that strategy in other area? We'll get to, you know, other parts of your career here, but like, totally. I, I, feel, I feel like that's kind of a, you know, if you're starting something out or you're trying to get momentum to build sponsorship dollars on the sales side is, is basically getting one or two like, really credible organizations to back it and use mm -hmm. that as a fuel to 
to really gain more revenue, right? For, for yeah. whatever event you've got. And, and honestly, I don't even think it's relative just to the sponsorship world. I think it's relative to anything you do. Um, when sure. you're building something, um, you basically have to bring people um, on the journey with you to say, you know what, why am I going to invest in you? Why am I going to believe in, in what you're doing? And generally, you need some level of um, confidence, right? Or like so, somebody um, is going to have to do that initial investment or initial name that gives them that reassurance that, you know what, I'm going to take a chance as well and come on board. It sounds like it's uh, already happening. So there's a lot of times I've used that in my career when I've built something uh, to, to kind of get one or two people on board, whether it be an executive speaking at an event or a sponsor. Um, and then use that as momentum to drive forward things that I wanted to do with that event anyways. That's really awesome. And what a great experience to have in college to be able to, to, to create something like this, get, get speakers involved, um, reach out, cold call them, have lunch with, you know, grab coffee with, with the CEO of, of the Toronto Blue Jays. I mean, what a, what an invaluable experience that was. And, and yeah. honestly, I, I think like if I was to ever tell students some, some advice while they're, um, still in school is, is figure out how to get involved, um, to, you know, with clubs, with, um, things outside of school, volunteer programs, and, and figure out how you can build a tangible skill set um, that will drive forward your career. Because a lot of times you're going to learn the, the theoretical things, the fundamental things, um, in school, in a classroom, but it's really where you pick up the applicable skills, um, it might not always be in the classroom. It might be in other places. So, so figure out how to diversify and, and understand, you know, where you can be learning um, just outside of the classroom during your time in, in college. And if something's not there, like do what you did, go, go create it, right. Create your it. experience and totally. be proactive in it. And, and here, here's a super valuable experience that you had. I'm going to be safe to say that you weren't getting paid for any of that, right. It was all just no. for the profit of experience. Yeah. And, and that's, that's more than I could have ever asked for, for sure. In fact, that probably was more valuable than being paid. Actually, I'd say it was more valuable. Yeah. So for sure. So then you, after, after graduating from university of Toronto, you went to George Brown college. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And the sports and event management program there. Um, what, what made you choose George Brown college over maybe trying to get into, to, uh, you know, some of these big brand name, you know, schools. So I'll take a step back. Um, you know, when I finished that UFT program, I had, uh, you know, gotten a job from a friend in accounting because yeah. <laughs> lo and behold, I, I forget that, you know, I was in accounting at one point. So I was working as a hedge fund accountant. Um, and within the first week, I realized really quickly that I, I hated what I was doing. Like I, I really didn't enjoy coming to work. Um, I was still within my training and then I ended up uh, quitting later that day. So I lasted a week at the company um, and, and realized that, you know what, if I'm not passionate about the work that I'm doing, it's going to be very hard to build a career, especially at the early stages, despite whatever income you're getting. Um, so I gave myself a one year time span to say, I want to get into sports marketing specifically um, and, and, you know, that also exposed me to the world of brand marketing where I am now, but I wanted to get into sports marketing out of school specifically. Um, and I wanted to figure out a plan of how to do that. So I had talked to a few people 
And I've noticed that a lot of successful alumni in the industry were coming out of this George Brown College sport and event marketing program. Um, you know, it's, it's a program that's very well respected in Canada. Uh, it's probably one of the bigger sports marketing programs out there in, in our country. Um, I also didn't want to break the bank. So the school, um, and this was very important to me was how can I do this effectively as well as find a way to get applicable experience. So the school actually offered a four month internship as part of the year program. Um, so I was basically paying the small tuition fee in order to get an internship that allowed me to build the experience that I needed to get into sports marketing. And what and was that internship? What, was it with the school specifically or did they provide one for you? So it, uh, it ended up being with the Toronto Blue Jays, the one I told you about. Oh, okay. So um, it was with the Blue Jays. Okay. Yeah. So that was, that was all happening within that one year span. Okay. Um, but because I had an opportunity to get an internship program, um, you know, the Blue Jays might not have uh, had that program offered out to every single school, but because it was a partner school, it allowed me to, to kind of, you know, get my foot in the door in, at the beginning stages. That's great. So you were, you were mirroring this of the George Brown College Sports and Event Management Program while you were, while you, were, you, you got in and had your first sports marketing job with the Toronto Blue Jays. They were kind of mirrored hand in hand there with that? Yeah, that's right. Okay. And, and with, with the, the Blue Jays, you, know, you, you mentioned that you had met the CEO and I'm sure that probably had a hand in it, but t- tell that story about going from, from graduation at the university of Toronto to, mm-hmm. to coming on with the, the blue Jays as an intern. So I remember, um, you know, when I, when I first, uh, was planning for internship interviews, I wanted to figure a way to stand out because there's a lot of kids coming out of these programs in sport and event marketing, um, that are very talented. And I already knew that I had great experience with building that conference. Um, you know, I came from a very well-respected business school. I, um, I wanted to go a little bit further in terms of what I would bring to the table with the interview. So I had created a small portfolio, um, you know, that had images and newspaper clippings and, um, you know, different things that, um, I was proud of in my career and was relative to the job. So a lot of it had to do with, you know, the sport um, conference that I had built at U of T, but there was many elements that I could build a storyline around while I was telling my story during the interview. So I I handed them when I went for that interview, um, the portfolio, which allowed them to see, you know, one, I was willing to go a little bit further than other candidates because Mm -hmm. not everyone would, would bring something that's supplementary for that interview. Um, but then also it, it showed them the initiative that I had outside of just school. Right. And I think that's so important that a lot of students forget is that you have an opportunity to go and achieve anything you really want in this day and age. Um, you just have to be willing to take a risk and, and jump right into it. So I think what they saw was, you know, I might not have had all the answers, but I was willing to find out how to do it. And so, um, you know, obviously that mixed in with the program that I was in, the school I was coming from, um, allowed me a very good chance of getting the job. And so I ended up getting that internship with the Blue Jays. What was, what was the role with the internship? What did they have you doing? So, so we have a, you know, I mean, you know how this is. So like the, the baseball season's very long in major, in major league baseball. 
Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of times at the beginning stages, you're, you're either creating um, post recaps for partners. Um, you know, you're, you're working on pitch decks with your sales directors. You're um, taking pictures of infield signage or things that are happening in the game, whether there's an activation for a partner. Um, you know, working on some national executions for um, some of their partners that already existed, like Frosted Flakes or Honda, um, and and just getting a little bit of a of a intro level uh, understanding of what a general marketing manager would do on the sponsorship side of the business. So I would say it's very high level what I was doing. I remember for for months I felt like I was working on this newsletter that never went anywhere. Um, that was internal. So sometimes there's those small, small tasks that it's just like, oh man, like I, I wish I was doing something more than this. Um, but it's also a very good opportunity for you to build the connections and, and the smaller skill sets that allow you to succeed later on. It's always good to spend a little bit of time, you know, as an intern to really dive in deep, not dive in deep, but really just get into the, the minutia of the tasks at hand there so that you can really understand them. So then when you progress in your career from sponsorships as you did in selling them, you're able to, you've actually been there. You've been the one that that's pulling on the sponsorship games onto the field or the dugout or wherever it is. Right. And and you were planning them and, and executing them so that you can speak to them when mm -hmm. you're trying to sell it too and understand something that might be a little bit more complex to execute mm -hmm. versus something that might be a little bit more efficient as well too. No, you're spot on. Um, yeah. The experiences you learn at the beginning stages allow you to just appreciate what goes into a successful sponsorship activation. Um, and, you know, whether you move to the sales side or the partnership management portfolio, like you're, you're learning so many different things about um, how things need to be executed. And in order for you to become a successful person from, from a higher standpoint, you need to understand the, the minutia of like, the smaller things. Love that. And, and you were there for a year. It's just the internship was up at that point and there was no necessarily full-time job. So yeah. It, yeah. So that, like it, it was basically um, 10 months. Um, it was, <laughs> it's funny cause I, I was supposed to only do a four month internship and I was the only pe person that like worked full time during my George Brown program. Yeah. Um, so the teachers hated it, but uh, you know, it, it got me a little bit of income to pay for my school um, and it gave me more exposure and experience than a regular intern. So yeah, yeah it, it was, for an, sure. it, it was good. Um, but it was a contracted internship for sure. Yeah. And and then you went to, um, work for the Toronto 2015 Pan Am games. Um, yeah, that's right. t t tell, tell a little, tell a little bit about that, your experience there. Yeah, probably not, man. Like, it was not a place that I planned to go. Um, it, it's funny, I talked to my friend Chris about this, who used to work there with me as well. Um, like, I would have never thought, you know, I'd be at the Pan Am Games because it seemed like, in a way, a second-tier property of the Olympics, right? I, I was always picturing myself working for those top, top-tier brands in the world of sports. Um, but I, I, I owe so much to my experience there. And I think, uh, you know, at the beginning part of my career, because it was such a growing organization, so the way the, these Olympic committees work and those, the Pan Am committees work is that they, they start building a small framework for who they want to hire in, in executive roles, and then they build out these teams, and then it balloons up to 
to thousands and thousands of employees. Um, and then they all get contracted until the end of the games and then the games finish and then they're all out of jobs. So it's, it's a very, very interesting um, project to work on because you're, you're working for something for so many hours for so long and then all of a sudden it's all done. But I owe so much of my understanding of sponsorship to working on that team um, and to reporting into good people and, and actually getting an opportunity to run with sales. Um, so I was coming from a partnership internship with the Toronto Blue Jays and I had applied for this job as a coordinator of sales for, uh, the, for the Pan Am Games. I ended up doing a really good interview. Um, I thought I had got the job and then I got a call um, and they were like, well, we ended up going with the other candidate. And I don't know why this is, but like anytime I hear that call where they, I was one of the top two people for the job and then they went, yeah. they went with another person. I, I'm always more irritated by that than if, uh, if I didn't hear that. But um, I stayed pretty positive and I think this is a good, um, you know, learning for my career is that when I um, had a chance, uh, you know, well, sorry, when I, when I got bad news, I reacted really well to it. And I kept in touch with the HR director who really loved me. Um, and, and funny enough, the person they ended up hiring for that coordinator role left within like maybe two months. Um, and he ended up leaving a very sour taste in the, in the, in the mouths of, of the people that were working there. Yeah. That's the not team. the thing to do. Hire on, yeah. and, you know, and, yeah. and, and do it. Unless you really don't like your job like you did after a week. <laughs> and, and fair enough, I, I'm not one to talk at all. Um, <laughs> but if like, you really I, don't like it, get out of there quick, but don't do it to, for two months, right? <laughs> yeah, so no, I, I think he just got a better job opportunity and, and left. And so yeah. anyways, uh, they called me up and they said, hey, listen, it didn't work out with the other candidate. Um, do you want to come on board? We're, we're, we're willing to offer you the job. So I think a lesson for me there was, you know, stay positive no matter what news you're given. Don't burn yeah. bridges. Yeah, don't burn bridges. You never know when something else is going to come up. So the more friends you have in this industry, uh, you know, the better off you're going to be. It's a big industry, but it's a it's small at the same time, right? Every, everybody mm -hmm. kind of knows everybody, right? Because it's such a niche industry. But no, that's those are that's words of wisdom for sure. And uh, you you guys did like 172 million in sponsorships, is that right? At the Pan Am yeah. Games. Yeah, so it was actually three times the amount of any Pan Am Games in history. And, and I think, um, you know, a lot of credit goes to the team that, uh, you know, I was working with because you don't receive that amount of money um, for an event of that scale uh, lightly. And it, it takes a lot of hard work. It brings on a lot of partners that are willing to, uh, you know, go the extra mile. So, um, you know, I think because it was the first time in multinational sporting event was being hosted in Canada, um, in the city of Toronto. Um, you know, a lot of corporate Canada wanted to jump on board. And, and I think we took advantage of that momentum and, and really brought on partners that brought the games to life. So this was a pretty small team. Is that right? That brought on yeah, 172 um, million. I mean, it had to have been, I can't so imagine was, it was too big. So there was four people on our sales team. Um, one person who was our vice president of both sponsorship and partnerships. Uh, so the management side as well. And then our senior vice president of marketing um, and sponsorship. So it was six people max, um, yeah. but really the sales for most of the partnerships, unless if they were a very, very top tier partner, um, were coming from the four of us. 
And the interesting part of that is actually, um, you know, two of the staff members ended up leaving before the contract was done. Um, because, you know, with these contract roles, sometimes it's very hard if you're in the later stages of your career to, to, to pass up a full-time opportunity. Um, so totally understand why they had left. And, and I think, um, for me, it just gave me such an opportunity to, you know, come into a platform that was now only two sponsorship salespeople, our VP, and then our senior VP. Um, so that just gave me a lot of room to play around and to actually go and execute and figure out my style of sales, um, which you generally wouldn't get as a coordinator in any other role. Yeah. So you were, you were in a support role to the sales team, but you, they, they gave you some sales opportunities. Yeah. So I was fortunate that they actually had met the budget, like they met the target goal that they were going for, for the games. And so a lot of the additional sponsorships that were coming in were lower level sponsors. So we called them proud supporters as part of our program. And they were, um, they weren't as big as like, you know, the 10 to $30 million partnerships that some of us that we were bringing in earlier. Um, so for me, I uh, actually was given fortune, like I was given the, the positive nature of, um, you know, running with that program and, and bringing on some sponsors, especially from a value and kind standpoint that allowed us to easier implement um, some of the games and the events. That's awesome. That's that's great. And, and where did you find most of your success bringing $172 million? I mean, you said how, how much more was that from previous years? Three times more. Yeah. Yeah. Where, where did you guys find all that success and being able to, to bring yeah. all that on? Uh, great question. I, I think that, uh, you know, you bring on a few partners, like we talked about earlier, it's eventually snowballs into having a partner family that allows you to, um, to bring on more additional partners. And I think part of it was the hype of the event coming to the city for the first time. Sure. Um, you know, being a host city, this, the, the number of potential partners that we had um, possibly talked to allowed us to really focus in on categories that, you know, uh, we wouldn't necessarily think of when we think of sponsorship. So um, funny enough, my first sponsorship deal outside of that Blue Jays $2,000 one was with a, a company called Bachner Eye Institute. And so I had pitched them on the idea. And these are two doctors that own a clinic in um, and a series of clinics in the city of Toronto. And so I had pitched them on the idea of being a proud supporter in terms of um, providing in value optician and um, opt optometrist um, services, as well as the outfitting and building of equipment for um, athletes at the athletes village to be able to look at their eyes. So as part of the event, we need to provide a service to these athletes in order to make sure that their, their eyes are, uh, are, are at game level and they, and then they have the ability to see appropriately for the events that they're participating in. So, um, part of the service that we needed to provide was outfit an actual, um, optometrist office within the games facility. And so in order to do that, we had to buy a number of equipment. Um, we had to actually get opticians and optometrists to, to, um, to outfit the, or sorry, to, to be at the location and to actually have their hours dedicated for the project. So a lot of that has value associated with it. So that was the first sponsorship deal I, I had actually negotiated. But the funny thing that ended up being the last sponsorship deal I closed 
at the Pan Am Games um, because the process of, of working with with the partner was was taking so long. Um, so there there was certain you know categories that we never expected to to lock down. But the interesting part about working at a place like that is that you're actually funded by the government, right? So your um, responsibility and onus is on ensuring the the you know the taxpayers and the community members that are help, ideally or they're actually funding the event and so you want to make sure that you're limiting the amount of budget that's being spent on this event and if you can do that with sponsorship successfully that was my goal right yeah. so my goal was to actually find more value and kind sponsors so that we could put budget towards other projects or better case eliminate budget necessity so that we can actually come under budget and, and prove to the government that we, uh, we had done a successful job in running this event. And you did that. How, how many years was it just, or it was just that one year, the 2015 Pan Am games, right? Yeah. So I was there for two years in two terms years. of the, the sponsorship okay. side. Yeah. And then you, and then you moved to the Canadian national exhibition known as mm-hmm. the X, right? That's that right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, as an account manager doing sales for them. What talk about this transition from the Pan Am games to the X. Yeah, so I, uh, you know, I'd finished my contract with the games, um, you know, just like everyone else would. And then there was an opportunity for a maternity leave contract at the uh, Canadian National Exhibition, which most people won't know of if you're outside of Canada. But it's, it's basically this massive fair um, that attracts about 2 million people per year uh, in the span of two weeks. So it, it actually, uh, it, signalized, it signals the end of summer for a lot of people because it's ending you know, it's at the ending of August and then the beginning part of September. So a lot of people associated with back to school. Um, my job was to, you know, work with the small team there to bring in partners for two new events. Um, one of them being uh, something called the Innovation Garage. So the CNE is very, very focused on innovation um, as that's what it was founded upon, you know, mm-hmm. many, many years ago. And so we started something called the Innovation Garage, which, uh, you know, was was very new, um, but we wanted to highlight certain things going on in the world of virtual reality, augmented reality, um, you know, different types of innovation that, you know, regular consumers might not be exposed to. So uh, we had built that program and actually launched a, a pitch competition where we brought in successful entrepreneurs to, to go in front of a series of judges. Um, so think Dragon's Den or, or Shark Tank, um, but a very small scale and in front of a live audience. So there was different programmatic elements that we had added to that program. And then, so my job was to kind of look at that program and ideate around how to bring in partners for it. And so did you have to organize the actual, the, these, these programs and then also bring sponsorships on or did, was there a team that kind of yeah, there was helped, the, helped there do was, that? And then you, you brought those partners on that could sponsor those those elements yeah. of the, of the, the I mean, j- just like any other partnership um, team, like you're, you're working internally and externally to execute something, right? Sure. So you've got to communicate with your team members on the program development standpoint or on the marketing team and ensure that your, um, you know, assets that you have sold in to a potential partner are actually being executed on. So we were fortunate to not have to do that. Like we, we had a program development team, that was very, very good at what they did. Um, so we just worked directly with them. So there was that one event that was the Innovation Garage. And the second one was the World Wakeboard Championships, um, which has never been held in Canada before that 
um, that year. And so we were bringing on uh, an interesting um, event because in a way we had opportunities to sell around the event. Um, but the World Wakeboard Championships also have their own partners that have activation rights. So generally what happens at the, the actual event is that, you know, most partners can't come on the event grounds and activate without paying, you know, the, the standard partnership fee. So we had to find a way to allow them space to activate at the event um, because they had contractual obligations with the World Wakeboard Association. Um, but then also give, it gave us an opportunity to bring on partners that were more sports related. So the way that I looked at it while I was at the CNE is, you know what, a lot of times in previous rules, the CNE has looked at it as there's 2 million people coming to this event and a lot of companies want to activate with a huge consumer base. So can we sell this as a, as an all in one fits everybody kind of tool that they can just come in, activate, and then leave within a few days. So when, when I came in with another colleague, um, we started thinking about how the innovation garage could have a life on its own and actually could partner with uh, different brands that are actually very thought of and well-respected in um, you know, small business spaces or entrepreneurial spaces or um, you know, in innovation itself. And then that is one portfolio. And then we look at you know, um, the, the World Wakeboard Championships and who actually wants to be invested in, in the world of sport and, and the world of, of edginess and, and kind of what World Wakeboard Association is all about. So there's different elements that we started looking at within the CNE that make up the greater event. And so instead of thinking, um, you know what, let's sell this as an approach of 2 million people are coming in, let's actually fragment the event so that we can associate certain partners with certain parts of the event that actually fit their strategy yeah. and their marketing objectives. Yeah. Yeah. To really, you know, create the experience, but then identify which partners are going to, are going to be able to link to that. What's going to make sense for, for, yeah. and, for and, those and sponsors. On, and honestly, that's where we got success. Um, and we got a lot more commitment in the level of partnerships. Um, so they might not have been large scale deals, but at the reality of it is that these partners were very committed to activating on site. Yeah. They were actually adding on value for our consumers. So, so part of it is, you know, now we're getting a chance to build a relationship with newer partners that allows us to build, um, you know, potential for longer term deals as long as the programmatic element fits what their objectives are. And if we're looking at it as an event that's very generic, as a greater scale event, now we're looking at it as MasterCard or PayPal or HP wants to invest in the world of innovation and the world of um, you know, small businesses. So how do we give them a platform to do that? By expanding on the programmatic elements that we're offering as part of the innovation garage. When we come back, Avish transitions from selling sponsorships to working for the Clorox company. We'll dive into the difference between managing sponsorships at the property level versus with a brand, and also talk about why he started the sponsorship space. Stay with us. This is Jason Smith, and you're listening to The Sponsor Pod. Support for The Sponsor Pod and the following message come from Sponsor CX. If you're looking for an innovative, intuitive, and simple way to manage your sponsorships, Look no further than this sponsorship management software. Sign up for a demo today and find out how easy it is to manage your sponsors. Learn more at www.sponsorcx.com. 
www.thesponsorpod.com. Hey, welcome back to The Sponsor Pod. I'm Jason Smith. Avish just finished working for the Canadian National Exhibition while picking up some recognition along the way and begins his journey with the Clorox company. You, you started to gain some notoriety here, and I'm, I want to outline some of the the uh, the recognitions that you've received here. So you've been named to the Marketing Magazine's 30 Under 30, Sports Launch Magazine's 30 Under 30, Young Achiever of the Year by the Indo-Canada Chamber of Commerce. And and this is, actually isn't too long ago um, that you've that you've received some of these accolades. What, what do you feel like started to happen with your career here? Yeah. Um, it's funny that you say that this wasn't that long ago. It, it, you know, like three months ago feels long ago. So this is, uh, you know, 2020 feels like 10 years ago at the beginning part of it. Um, but yeah, so I, I think at that point I, it was around 2015, 2016, you know, the Pan Am games part of it was very, very, um, you know, great for me in terms of being part of a team that really, was well-respected and executed on such a successful event within the city of Toronto. So a lot of people took notice of me being a part of that team and, and bringing in those, those hefty revenue goals as part of a team. Um, and then also when I went to the CNE, the, the approach that I was taking uh, alongside my colleagues was how can we differentiate the product offering and the value proposition we have with so many different niche products and, and events during the two weeks of the of the greater CNE event, so we we did we did things a little bit differently, and it allowed me a lot more breathing room to test things and and to actually go and run with a program more than um, you know if I was to go to a very well respected like or a very well known um, uh, Toronto Raptors organization or a Cleveland Browns or a New York Giants sort of thing. Um, for me, because I went to places where I was very fortunate that one at the Pan Am games, they had already reached their revenue target. They gave me an opportunity to go out and run and figure out my style of sales. When I, when I got to the CNE, um, because it was such a small team, uh, you know, they gave me an opportunity to go and run and sell these new programs that have never happened before. So there was no precedent with a lot of these situations. Right. And I think for yeah. me, when, when there is no precedent, there's all opportunity. Right. So how can I, figure out a way to really blow this out of the water so that I can um, not only, cause I, I don't think I'm doing it for the recognition. I'm, I'm doing it for the sense of like, how can we make and create something? And it comes back to that entrepreneurial mindset I have and make it mean something to the consumer and mean something to the partners that are investing in it. And well, I think great. because that's, that's great yeah. wisdom there. Cause I think some of our young listeners, you know, listening to this and kind of deciding what they want to do, a lot of them want to go work for the big NBA team or NFL, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but at earlier stages in your career, it's 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 not a bad thing necessarily to earn your stripes with with some organizations that have opportunities for growth and to really to really shine. And and as you said, it you were able to find how you do sales, and they were giving you experiences on how to do that, and you were figuring yourself out and using that entrepreneurial spirit that you had and that you have, you're able to, to, to really capitalize on those opportunities. So it's not always about the big glitz and glamor of, of big organizations. Yes, they're amazing to work for, but there's also some really great opportunities with, with smaller organizations. I, I think that's, that's really well said because um, a lot of kids coming out of university, and I heard this all the time, was I want to work for Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment. 
And I would approach it and be like, well, like, what, what's your plan B? Like, what, what, what do you think you're going to learn at that place um, that's going to allow you to accelerate your career really quickly and really give you the exposure you need? Um, well, a lot of them had responded and been like, well, I just want to work in sports. Um, and I think that's part of the mentality that I'm hoping changes over time is, you know, sports is great, but the reality of it is where can you go to build a skill set that if you want to work in sports later on, that's great, but where can you build a skill set and a foundation at the beginning part of your career that allows you to really just learn about yourself, be given opportunities and to go run with programs. Um, and I think a lot of times those are at the smaller places and those are at the niche places. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of kids are actually doing themselves a disservice by closing their mind to saying, I want to work at this place. I want to work at this place. I think what people should really be doing at the beginning stages is where will give me the most opportunity and where will I be given the most flexibility to really learn about myself and, and really learn about different projects and, and touch a lot of different things because there's no clear path after that. But what you can find out is a lot about what you do enjoy and what you don't enjoy. For sure. I, w- I want to talk, I want to talk about um, now you with the Clorox company and you've been there the last four years. Um, and over that time you've been able to, to do marketing for Clorox and Pine Sol and Brita. But what was that connection coming from the X to, um, to, to the Clorox company? So back to that entrepreneurial mindset, I actually went um, and randomly messaged someone uh, named Sarah Ao, and she was the senior brand manager on Brita at the time. And she had won the marketing magazine 30 under 30 award the year before I won. So I reached out to her just to say like, hey, I saw this job opening. Um, you know, I was in the marketing class last year I'm really curious about, you know, the work that you're doing. I'd love to hear more. Um, And just kind of, you know, talked about some of the initiatives that she was doing and how I loved the approach they were taking. And then, so we ended up actually, um, you know, connecting over that, but she didn't, she actually gave the job offer um, to someone else. They didn't end up taking it. Um, And so I actually had an opportunity, even though I was very, very late in the interview process to come in and they moved really quickly and they brought me on board, but it was because, you know, that award actually ended up giving me an opportunity to have a conversation with someone I might not have already done. So I think the power of expanding your network in advance of um, certain job openings coming up or certain things happening is really powerful as long as you do it, um, you know, in a, in a very honest and open way. Um, and in, in an approach of learning. And I think like, you know, because I came at it as I've always wanted to be a better marketer, how can I find a way to, you know, now that I've taken those five years of sponsorship experience on the property side, how can I go to a place where I will continue to build that foundation that I wanted? Um, and I knew that Brita and the Clorox team was where I wanted to do it. And what is, you just mentioned about t- taking that experience from the from the property side and, and now you're on the brand side, what's the difference between negotiating a sponsorship or any, any sort of marketing agreement on the property side versus the brand side? So I think um, one thing I'd love to see changed on the property side, and, and when I was on there, I noticed how big of a disconnect there was between a lot of brands and a lot of properties. Um, for me, I was trained on the sales side 
So I had gone in, especially with Pan Am, to say, this is our package. We want you to be a part of this event. You know, it's kind of like, we'll work around and we'll try to figure out um, wiggle room. But generically, a lot of these are commoditized assets, right? And so not every brand actually wants to participate. I was fortunate that the Pan Am Games was very, very well respected and there was a lot of hype. So there was a lot of things that played into our success. But then when I went over to the brand side, I started learning that people started coming to me with pitches that were um, very, very commoditized. And they were like, I want, you know, there's this rink board signage that we need to sell. And and we were thinking Clorox, you know, does some stuff in cleaning and, you know, Brita does some stuff with clean water. And we saw this program. The reality of it is they're not looking at what our objectives are based off the current marketing investments and, and opportunities we have. And a lot of properties need to do a better job of, you know, going around the commoditization of our industry um, and actually selling ideas and marketing concepts versus just assets. And I think when brands start to hear those conversations, we're a lot more um, you know, understanding and, and actually willing to have conversations because they actually have you know, our um, KPIs in mind. And a lot of times I've seen that um, it's, it's just a numbers game. In, in for a lot of properties and it was for me when I was on that side so I've learned to kind of change if I ever in, in my future go back to the property side of the business um, one of the things that I always wanted to bring forward with me is the creativity of working on the marketing side of the business and actually understanding what a brand's objectives are and building a tailored marketing program that is really respective of that and that will amplify and get the results that brand needs because if you don't do that the sponsorship becomes very worthless, um, but if you do do that, it becomes priceless. So I think that's one thing that I've learned is is there's a bit of a disconnect between properties and and, and brands. And I think properties, especially with COVID now, are learning to be a lot more creative. Um, we're seeing this in you know assets that are created with fans not in stadiums, um, you know, um, different sort of activations that are happening because we've never actually had the opportunity to do so but i hope this accelerates where properties are moving so it allows brands to be a lot easier to pick the properties they want to invest in because the creative ones are coming to us with these ideas that are really really built on what we need to do as a brand to move forward i agree with you i think on the on the brand side is where a lot of the creativity comes right you know you've get you you get a um a, a sales rep on the property side that comes in and says, here's the assets that I have to, to sell you. Do, you. do you want them? You know, on the, on the brand marketing side, you can sit there and go, okay, here are the assets, but we, we can creatively come up with a concept to integrate into those assets. But you're right. It would be nice for, for the properties to, to actually ask questions that mm-hmm. are, relevant to the business of like, what are your objectives? What are your KPIs? What are the ROI or ROO or what, whatever, you know, jargon you want to use, you know, acronym that you want to use for that. Um, what are those objectives that you have to, to, to show a positive um, return on investment really with, with that. And, and once they actually find that, instead of coming and trying to pitch something like that, find out that information, take it back and then, bring these creative, creative ideas back. 
it would make it would make it a lot easier on the brand side for sure. And and sometimes it's just as simple as understanding what that brand stands for and and what their purpose is in serving a consumer base, right? Mm-hmm. So I'll give you an example of a partnership that I worked on with our senior brand manager um, with with a um, a partner called Me to We, and so they're a charity, um, you know, based out of Canada. And so our initiative was basically um, working with them for every time a consumer buys a Brita product we would be giving one year of clean water to someone uh, in Kenya that might not have access to it. So what we had, that's awesome. So like very simplistic idea, I'll get into the insight and the idea behind it, but like at the root of it, anytime a consumer tries to get clean water for themselves through a Brita product, they're giving clean water to someone else. So it's like the Tom's model um, where you're giving one and you're getting one. But Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, it, it was rooted on this insight of, you know, Brita needs to build household penetration. We need to figure out a way to, to expand on the volume that is coming into the category because we are such a market leader in that category. And so for us, we need to bring in bottled water users. We need to bring in other types of um, uh, product purchasers that might not be using a Brita system now. So obviously we want to increase sales, right? And what we've learned is that, um, you know, when we touch upon sustainability, when we touch upon, you know, human emotion like this program, uh, there's really something deep rooted in, into the success behind, you know, the activation of it. So what we had found was when we launched this Me to We program, we had so many different elements. And because the clean water element was so coinciding with what we wanted to do as a brand, but also what Me to We was doing in Kenya, we had actually found a way to funnel the investment that the consumer was making to support things that were happening in Kenya already with that me to we partnership. So basically um, we had found a way to take the root of it and, and really a simplistic idea that a consumer can understand and execute on it. So it's, it's really simple um, for anyone to pick up a Brita product and know what they're investing towards. There's so many, there's so many things that are great about that. Um, and really bringing, bringing that, that type of creativity from the property side to the brand side, as you mentioned, there, there is a, there is a lack of, of, of that happening. I, man, can you imagine how that would be all the creativity that could happen if both sides were. were and and were, honestly, were, honestly, man, you're starting to see it now, right? So I, sure. I forget what pizza company did this, but uh, I think it was the, um, the Dodgers. I want to say they had like an outfield sign um, and, and like anytime a home run would hit the outfield sign, everybody in the audience would get a uh, free pizza. The funny thing is that everyone in the audience is a cardboard cutout. Um, so it's like, there's, there's elements that people are being creative with the fact that there's no fans in the audience and how to, to, to build on the fun and the humor and the enjoyment that sports can offer. Um, but a lot of it wasn't there prior. Yeah. COVID has helped us with a lot of creativity for sure. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, We we have to, at this point, there's literally no sports, no events that anyone can attend right now across the country, right around the Mm -hmm. world really. And so we, we have to be innovative that way. And so that, that's, that's amazing. That's great. You, you founded in the sponsorship space and those who are listening, I'm sure have, either follow the sponsorship space on um, LinkedIn 
have seen uh, the the news feeds that come through of all the different sponsorship, create creative sponsorship uh, activations that are out there. You even touched on a couple of them here on this podcast, but you've created this. Is it a nonprofit? Yeah, so it's not a nonprofit, but what I what I do call it is a social community because I've never really okay. money for any of the initiatives. Yep. But um, what I had noticed was that there there was a lack of global community within the world of sponsorship marketing. So a lot of people networked with each other. Um, but what I had noticed when I didn't have a job at the time, and this was pre Pan Am Games, I think, um, was that a lot of executives knew of everyone that was at an executive level, but they didn't know of the people that were in the early stages of their career. So we wanted to create a platform that allowed us to share stories of people earlier on in the stages of their career, um, but also find a way to connect them with the senior decision makers and to create a more of a global community that allowed you know best practice sponsorship to be shared, um, for people to learn and to not have to break the bank to do that so that everyone can kind of have more access to, um, you know, education resources for them to, to build on their career and to also get connected with the right people. So we just call it a social community. Yeah. Um, at the why, root of why it. Did you, why did you create yeah. it? Was it, was there, did you see this need or what I was, the, what was yeah. the back behind that? I mean, I, I, there's a simple insight behind um, sharing news, sharing insights around, uh, you know, potential sponsorships and, and ones that are coming forward. The reality of it is we're checking LinkedIn every day, right? A lot of salespeople, a lot of people in the sponsorship industry, they're on a platform to consume information and to connect with other people. So why not create that community that lives on that platform where people already are and, and actually build around that? So I think um, we just wanted to, to go where the consumer was, uh, you know, talking my brand marketing lingo and, and build that community there where they already are. And so that they can have that platform to continually be updated and do the things they've already done. And you're sharing tons of content. How do you, how do you find it all? To, Cause there's, there's mm-hmm. multiple posts a day that, that are where you're sharing, um, yes. stories, insights, things that are going on in the industry. Um, putting on conferences, you, you name it. What, what, where do you, how do you find the time to do that? It's very difficult. Um, I, you know, I, I, I usually wake up a little bit earlier, go to bed a little bit later um, and, and dedicate a, maybe like two hours a day to, to kind of focus on this stuff um, where, you know, I either have a network that already exists that share the content with me or I have a team of people. So, you know, shout out to my friend, Max, who works with me on this project um, and a few other people to make sure that, you know, we're getting the right content that's being shared over our social platform. And then the reality of it is it's not a lot of work to share a post or a story when you see it. So, you know what, if I have to take a two minute or 30 second break, um, when I see something happen on social, I can do that, share it on a network and go back to what I was already doing. Um, sometimes it will be right on time. Sometimes it'll be later in the day. Not a big deal if we, if we keep on top of the things that are happening in the industry. But I think, you know, one, because we have a team behind the project and it's not just me. Um, and two, that, you know, I have a network that is, uh, actually bringing information to me that allows me a lot easier ability to, to share the content that's relevant towards, 
um, the sponsorship people in our network. And you have a podcast too called Sponsor Talk. You want to tell the listeners about that? A little, little yeah. shameless plug on your podcast? <laughs> <laughs> sure, man. Thank you. Um, yeah, so we, we created a, a – so I, I think as part of the sponsorship space, we wanted to figure out how can we inspire and educate and influence the next generation of sponsorship leaders and marketing leaders. Um, so we wanted to, one, start holding conferences, education seminars, virtual events, but then also have informational podcast interviews that allowed people to, to hear stories similar to what you know me and you are talking about right now, um, but also share the stories of the people that are in the sponsorship industry doing very creative things or in a very senior positions. Um, and eventually when I move it forward, I think we're going to start covering a lot more people in the industry at various positions because I think at the end of the day, people need more stories, right? And if you think about, you know, where I was in my career when I first started, probably where you were in your career when you first started, you learned from other people's stories and, and how they got to where they are. And you did the digging yourself. Yep. If me and you can provide platforms for other people to allow them to learn those stories very easily and excessively, it just allows our industry to be better. And my hope is that, you know, platforms like ours just give people an opportunity to learn, to educate and to connect with other people. So thanks for the shout out, man. Um, you know, trying to, trying to build that off the ground, but I just have fun talking to people like you. So yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's why I've got this podcast too, to share stories, right? Now we're listening to yours today. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I love that. I love that sponsorship connect piece to it um with the with the um the sponsorship space um well first of all how, how can people how can people follow you and in, in the sponsorship space if they want to consume your mm -hmm. content so we we're on twitter so at sponsor talk is our twitter handle and then on linkedin which is probably our most active network um is the sponsorship space just type it in in the search bar and you'll find us pretty quickly um awesome. but yeah yeah and, and the sponsorship connect piece, as I was talking about back, back in May, and this is probably when you and I met and we had exchanged some, some notes back and forth, but back in May, you organized a virtual event during COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and I don't know if you were planning to do this anyway before COVID hit, but it was brilliant for, for the time. But you, you were able to get 38 speakers to come and people could pay a small fee um, to have access to these 38 speakers, which we're talking, we're not just talking anybody. We're talking some pretty significant names in the industry, right? Mm -hmm. You're able to raise nearly $20,000 to support food banks, everything, the small fee that people paid, everything went to go help, help food banks. Um, what inspired you to do this? Maybe tell about the event and what inspired you to do this, this, these virtual events. Yeah. So I, t I totally wasn't planning this before COVID hit. Um, I think the reality of, you know, what I was seeing with a lot of my friends in the sports industry was uh, a lot of furloughs, a lot of layoffs. Um, and it, it in, encouraged me to find a way and influenced me to find a way to, to help others. Right. And yeah. I think at the root of, of why I wanted to start the sponsorship space was to do just that. Right. To give people a platform to help them succeed in, in their roles and in their, in their um, industry. So I think I talked to someone that I had on my podcast, who was our first guest, Justine Fadak. And she was the former head of BMO, uh, BMO social team and sponsorship team. 
So I was chatting with her and I said, Hey, listen, like, I think we could really do a virtual event to raise money for people. Um, right now there's a, a severe lack of, you know, food resources for people because they're losing their jobs and, um, there's a way for us to help. But I think, you know, a lot of brands are already doing this, but what if we did something for the sponsorship community with all these people losing jobs and gave them a community that they can rely on for, you know, a few days to just kind of say, here's a little bit of a reset to learn from these executive leaders so I can funnel a little bit of, um, you know, insight into my day-to-day work or into the work that I want to do. And then also donate a very small portion um, of, you know, the cost of what it takes to, to, to attend the event and actually put that towards supporting that food insecurity piece. So we had partnered with Second Harvest and Feeding America to have all funds donated and dedicated towards, um, you know, their initiatives towards supporting food insecurity. And so I had uh, worked with Justine on getting, and it's funny because we talk about that snowball effect at the beginning of this podcast. And so Justine helped me get one or two speakers on board. And then all of a sudden this snowball happened of all these speakers being like, yeah, I want to come on board. I want to come on board. And then eventually people were actually, as I continued to promote the event, were reaching out to me to speak. And so we had built this great um, platform that allowed, you know, high level executives to come and really share, you know, what they were doing in the world of COVID um, and how they were battling it with obviously all the challenges they had, but then allowed all these um, professionals in the industry to have a way to connect with each other um, through the chat features of their Zoom conference. Um, and, and also learn while knowing that their impact was making a difference in someone else's life. So it was really successful, man. I, I hope to do more of those. I think at the end of the day, I noticed a need for people to come together in our industry. And I also noticed um, a way to uh, figure out how uh, we can embedder society within the sponsorship world to help others um, outside of just our people, right? Um, yeah, that's the root of it. Yeah, and I'd encourage I'd encourage everyone who's listening to follow the sponsorship space so that you can be up to speed on on when um, Avish ends up doing doing more of these because that is pretty impactful. And I've listened to a few few of your uh, your interviews um, from that conference, and and um, I know you've posted even a few on your on your podcast, and they're great interviews, and there's some amazing insights that you can gain with that. So thank you for doing it. And and hopefully we see some more content from you in the future. Thanks brother. Appreciate that. We're, we're going to wrap up, wrap up here. Um, cause we've, we've gone, we've gone quite a while here, but there's been a lot of, a lot of really good, good insight, but, um, what do you feel like the future looks like for you and, uh, you know, where you're at with the Clorox company and, and most, most importantly, the sponsorship space, what do you think the future looks like? It looks fun, man. Um, I think for Clorox, I am so, so excited to come to work, man. Like it's, I never thought I would say this about working on cleaning products, but it is such a challenging environment to come into a place where, you know, you don't know what tomorrow is when it comes to inventory supply or product availability or to what our marketing will look like. Um, or what strategy will be built. But at the end of the day, it's like, 
those challenges are teaching me so much about marketing, um, are going to set me up for success five years from now, 10 years from now. And I know that when I look back in my career and to say, you know what, I was one of the marketers that worked on this portfolio during the biggest pandemic we've ever seen in our lifetime. Um, that's going to be a very, very powerful thing to say and, and a powerful learning opportunity. So I, I'm excited to just be in the present right now um, and think about like, these are all amazing things for my career. Um, I, I'm just looking at, at today, tomorrow and, and the near future as an opportunity to learn. And then with the sponsorship space, I love that Clorox gives me the flexibility and the availability to, you know, work on projects that I find meaning, um, meaningful to the community. And they encourage me to do that, to, to have that sense of ownability and to build a platform for others. Um, so shout out to, to the team there that allows me to do that. Um, but I think the sponsorship space is going to continue to be what it is now. It's, it's a social community for people to get together. Um, I don't want to charge people for uh, the ability to learn. I want to bring people together to empower them so that they can be better at their careers and um, to meet other people. So I think it's funny you asked me about the future. I'm talking a lot about the present, but because I, I really like where the present's at right now. You got to live in the moment, right? Mm -hmm. That's good. And, and there's a couple of questions I ask all, all of my guests that come on the podcast um, as I end the show. And the first one is what makes you get up in the morning and do what you do? I feel like I just really enjoy marketing and it's, it's so cliche. Um, I like psychology, right? And I don't know why I like it, but I like understanding where a person is thinking based off something that's happened to them. Or, or things around them. Um, so I love the idea of using brands to interact with people in their everyday lives and to make their lives better. Um, but I love thinking about where the consumer need is, where they're thinking about a product and that purchase um, in, in their cycle um, and, and, and using our platform as a brand to really support that person that we're targeting and, and help them on their journey. So I think brands have a very powerful tool in front of them, which is purpose um, that allows people to, to really resonate with that brand and to understand what they mean. So for me, it's bringing that purpose to life and actually impacting consumers and really understanding where their mindset is at that gets me excited about the work that I do. And I think, um, you know, as I continue to build my marketing career, I think it'll always come back to, to that kind of thing. And you got to believe in the brand that you do it for, right? Totally. As well. Second question is if, if you were listening to this podcast and you're young enough that I'm going to have it be 10 years ago, if you're listening to this mm -hmm. podcast 10 years ago, what do you wish you knew then that you know now? I, I wish that I, I knew um, the, like, the self-confidence and the ability to build your own opportunity is what's going to set you apart and give you opportunity um, to succeed. And I think... I always treated life as a very, um, like a stairmaster in a way. You take one step or, or set of stairs. You take one step and that is the title you get. You're a coordinator and then you're a manager and then you're a director and then you're a VP. When I, when I went into accounting, I actually realized pretty quickly that a lot of the people applying for these jobs, um, you know, they got in be stopped marks and their marks allowed them to get to the next step at the next step 
but I, I actually didn't have that opportunity. But if I had the self-confidence earlier on to say, you can get that opportunity, you just have to build it um, and have to move in a lateral movement that allows you to learn a lot more about yourself. So don't, don't really take your career as step by step as what a lot of people paint it out to be. I think more people need to talk about their failures, need to talk about things that have happened to them that actually show the story of their career as not a straight line and not as a stair by stair sort of scenario. Um, so that we all know 10 years ago, um, if I was to tell myself, like, you can take on any opportunity as long as it, as long as you take it head on. And it doesn't really matter what you're doing. Just think about where it's going to take you um, and how you're going to be better off because of it. So don't don't be upset because you didn't get that promotion. Don't be upset because you didn't get that job. Um, you know, be upset because you didn't give 100% into building that opportunity for yourself. And I think that that's what I would tell myself. Avish, thanks so much for coming on the podcast today. We so much appreciate it. Thank you. Yeah, appreciate it, buddy. This is this is awesome. And, and thank you for doing what you do. I'm just glad to be a, a small part of it. No, thank you. Avish Sood, brand manager with the Clorox company and founder of the sponsorship space. Thanks, Avish. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Sponsor Pod. Today's podcast was brought to you by Sponsor CX. If you're looking for an innovative, intuitive, and simple way to manage your sponsorships, look no further than this sponsorship management software. Sign up for a demo today and find out how easy it is to manage your sponsors. Learn more at www.sponsorcx.com. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of the Sponsor Pod. Before you go, I want to remind you to subscribe and share this podcast with your friends through email, social media, or even by word of mouth. We appreciate all the support. Until next time, I'm Jason Smith, and you've been listening to the Sponsor Pod.